uh, a seasonal joke to open. What did the big flower say to the little flower? Hey, bud. <laughs> right? Okay, my name is Richard. I, uh, a little bit about me before we get, uh, really get the party started. I grew up down in southern Ontario and uh, saw the light and came up here instead. <laughs> came up here for university. I uh, was here for seven or eight-ish years. Uh, uh, got married to a, through some amazing miracle to a wonderful woman named Brenda. Uh, and then we sadly moved back down to the gray <laughs> armpit of Ontario. <laughs> and, uh, but then we got an opportunity to come back up a couple years ago, and we've, uh, we're so happy to be back here in Thunder Bay. Um, I grew up in a, in a home that was not a Christian home, like intentionally not a Christian home, and didn't, didn't really know God, didn't have any interest in knowing God until I wanted to impress Brenda. Because <laughs> she grew up Christian, and so I thought, this is important to her, I should, I should at least learn something about it. So we started going to church. I started following her to church and then uh, found a home at Grassroots back in the early days. And, uh, and then over the last, I guess, decade or so, there have been a few moments where God has really just showed up and um, either kicked me pretty hard in the butt or saved me uh, from myself and, uh, and some, some pretty awful, nasty moments, circumstances, whatever you want to say. And I'm just so incredibly thankful that I had the opportunity to meet him and that she showed me um, his love and that now I, now I get it, I think. If it's your first time here, I'm really excited that you're here. Thank you for coming. If you don't normally come, welcome. Uh, the bathroom's head out that door, hang a left. If you need coffee, it's at the back, go right ahead. And there's donuts. Thanks, Josiah. Uh, yeah, this is my first time speaking here at Grassroots. I do speak uh, in public fairly often at, uh, at work. I work at the university, but it's my first time getting to, to deliver a message here. And what, what God has put on my heart today is, uh, is an opportunity for us all to, to connect with him a little deeper through challenging ourselves, through asking ourselves some hard questions. So I'm going to try to ask us some hard questions. And it might get uncomfortable. I hope not too badly, but it, it might. Um, I'm going to really work on leaving my personal thoughts and opinions on any of the topics I bring up out because that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm just here to encourage some thought. I, I've entitled the message Right, or Right? Our Collective PR pro Problem. I, I think that over the last 20 centuries, Christians have done a really good job of digging ourselves a pretty deep hole in terms of how we present ourselves outside of ourselves. And coming from a background of not being a Christian, coming from a family where our understanding of Christians was judgmental, selfish, pushy, know-it-alls, that was a big thing I had to get over in order to well, meet God and access his love. But that's not where I'm going to start. To begin, Jesus is awesome. And here's a little story about that. I'm going to start today with a little part of the Easter story. So imagine 
Imagine yourself in a room upstairs in Jerusalem with about a dozen of your closest friends. And like talking really close friends. And imagine it's the night before you know and really know, like you're the son of God, so you know everything. This is the night before you know that your 12 closest friends are about to betray you. And that all of your like, legions of adoring fans are going to suddenly flip and demand your death. Your violent, awful death. What would you do? Would you scold them and point out how cowardly and unfaithful they are? Would you try to convince them to stay on your side? What did he do? In the book of John, it says, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. He didn't scold them, didn't argue with them, didn't point out how wrong their actions that they were about to take were going to be. He washed the camel manure off of their feet. And then he had dinner with them. So then let's fast forward a few hours to uh, the scene on Pilate's balcony. If you don't know what that means, uh, Pilate was kind of the mayor, Roman-appointed mayor, I guess, of the Jews in Jerusalem. He was the guy in charge. Uh, and Jesus had been betrayed and handed over to Pilate and his soldiers to um, put on trial. And they beat him. And they teased him all night, made fun of him while they were beating him up. And Pilate kept asking him questions. They kept putting him on trial, demanding. You tell them, you know, or trying, trying to figure out what he had done wrong, why people were so angry at him. And Pilate comes to the crowd and says, I can't find a reason to condemn this man. I, I can't, I don't see what he did wrong. But this crowd who just days ago were like lining the streets and cheering his entry into the city, same people. We're demanding his blood. What had changed? What had changed was in that, that day in the crowd, the chief priests and the officers, also known as the Pharisees, saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So a little background there. So the chief priests, they knew the law. And the law... Uh, is, is kind of how we refer to the scriptures pre-Jesus. This, this was the early Jewish version of the Bible, for lack of a better way to say it in my brain right now. They really, really knew their stuff. They had it basically memorized, and they worked really hard to live according to the law and to follow all the rules. And they really didn't like when Jesus came along and challenged the way they were doing things. They really didn't like that he was claiming to be the son of God. One thing that, the, that they were really good at, the Pharisees were really good at, was demonstrating how great they were at following their rules. They even made up extra rules to make it so that they couldn't even come close to breaking the rules. 
They were also really good at making people feel intimidated by how well they knew the scriptures. They pretty much had folks convinced that their, you know, chamber pots didn't stink, if you know what I mean. Do you know anyone like that? So when Pilate asked what they should do with Jesus, they used their knowledge and they used their like, rightness to get the crowd on their side and, de- and demand that he be crucified. I kind of imagine them walking through the crowd with like, hoods on, whispering things into people's ears. We're the experts. He blasphemed. He's a sinner. Don't you want to be on the right side? Don't you want to be with the righteous ones? Look, we follow the rules. And they turned that crowd into an angry mob. And how did Jesus react? He said, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. So he's betrayed by his friends. He's betrayed by his followers, nailed to a cross, and he prays for their forgiveness. So, the word Christian. Someone who follows Christ. Right? So what are ways we show that we're following him? We give to the poor, pray for the sick, shovel snow for the elderly, we cook meals for the homeless, we drill wells in Africa, we do all kinds of incredible work around the world and lift people out of terrible situations. And I was really hoping to talk about this stuff today, but as they say, if you want to make God laugh, just tell him the plan. He told me to talk about something else. How else do we sometimes show that we're following Jesus? We tell people about the gospel. But sometimes that turns into confrontations, it turns into arguments. So tell me if you've you don't, have to, you don't actually have to tell me, but tell me if you've kind of heard or, or had a conversation like this where the Christian says, you're wrong. And the non-Christian says, no, you're wrong. And then the Christian says, but the Bible says. And then the non-Christian says, but I don't believe in the Bible. And then the Christian says, you're wrong. And then the non-Christian says, no, you're wrong. And then the Christian says, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Because you're wrong and you need the help. No thanks. Does that sound like Jesus? Or does that sound like the Pharisees? You're wrong and here's why and I'll make you sure you know how wrong you are and how right I am. So we argue, we confront... Sometimes we polarize and we attack when confrontation and argument isn't enough. We hate, love, follow. We vote for, we protest against, we condemn, we lift up. What Christians hate, follow, vote for, protest against, love, condemn, lift up. If other Christians are doing it, it's the Christian thing to do. 
My mom used to say, if all your friends are jumping off a bridge, it doesn't mean you have to. The problem with these two approaches, with the arguing and the confronting, and with the um, polarizing and attacking, is that it assumes that the world is set up us versus them. And when it's us versus them, that means we're right because, or therefore, they're wrong. Well, there's two little, I see two, two big problems with this. The first is that's a false dichotomy. You don't have to be wrong for me to be right. And I certainly don't have to rub your nose in it. I also don't have to be right for you to be wrong. The second, oops, I missed the second. The second is that Jesus didn't see them. According to Jesus, it's us and us. He loves us all the same. Okay, we're going to move in now to a brief, albeit incomplete, history of the idolatry of being right. Because this is what it is. We get really, really caught up in being right. And we've put it ahead of things that belong in front. So we'll go back a couple thousand years to Moses. If you don't know who Moses is, I'll give you a really brief, incomplete history of Moses. Uh, Moses was, among other things, a leader of the early Jewish community. Who He's the one who led them out of slavery in Egypt. So the Jews spent a, a long time as slaves in the Egyptian empire. And one day, God brought Moses, kind of lifted him up as a leader, went and found him in a field where he was being a shepherd, said, you're going to lead your people out of Israel. He went, and through a series of incredible events you can read about in the book of Exodus, it's at the front of the Bible, um, he did. He brought them out of slavery. And then he led them through the desert for 40 years while they were trying to find their home. And he was kind of, the, yeah, he was their leader. He was, the, he was the, the one in charge. And at one point, they were desperate for water and, and God said, see that rock over there? Go whack it with your staff and it's gonna pr- provide water. He did that. Miracle happened. They had water. They survived. It was great. A few years later, they're in the same situation and God says, Go to that rock and tell it to give water. So what does Moses do? He hits it with a stick. It worked the last time. I'll do it again this time. But God was not happy with him. Not one bit. I mean, in fairness, the first time... God said, hit it with your stick. He hit it with a stick and water came out of a rock. And that's the sort of thing that if that happens, that's kind of impressive, amazing, surprising. But this time God said, tell it to give water. Fairly straightforward instruction. Very straightforward instruction. But instead, Moses hit it with his staff. Assuming what I did last time is going to work this time. I know better. 
I know what works. And God punished him. So that's one of the early records of us uh, wanting to be right rather than do right. Another, let's skip forward a few centuries here to the, to the Middle Ages when, when uh, we started hunting witches. The logic was, the Bible says witchcraft is bad. Bad things are happening that I can't explain, so it must be witches. So let's go kill them. And keep in mind, these are Christians doing this. They were right. The Bible does say witchcraft is bad. But where was Jesus? Were they right? A couple hundred years later again, we get to Galileo. Galileo had the nerve to see the evidence differently than the way other people had seen it before. <laughs> he had the, the nerve to suggest that maybe the absolute well-known fact that the sun orbits around the earth wasn't quite accurate. He had the nerve to say the earth is not the center of the universe. But this was an absolute fact. This was known to be right that the earth was the center of the universe. And we didn't like that. So they said, you're wrong, you heretic. The sun orbits the earth. We all know that. And they put him under house arrest for the rest of his life. Turns out it wasn't quite such an absolute fact after all, and they apologized a few hundred years later. So yes, sometimes Christians are wrong, and we're human after all. A lot of times we're right, though, right? Yeah. So let's talk about that. This is one of my favorite moments in the entire uh, New Testament, the part of the Bible about Jesus. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. So you should imagine this. It's early, early, early. It's just starting to be light. Jesus is in the temple, which is kind of the, the home, the, the center of the Jewish world. Teaching about the scriptures. And suddenly there's a commotion. And these men, this big group of people drag this woman, who knows how dressed she was, pretty embarrassing, pretty awful moment, drag her in. They caught her in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So, 
without even getting into questions about the, like, what the heck were they doing outside this woman's house in the middle of the night? How did they know what was going on in there? Where's the, where's the other partner? They were right. She didn't deny it. She was caught in the act. They were absolutely right. Now, I wonder what we would have done in that situation. Well, what did Jesus do? Took a minute, and then he said, let he among you who is without sin cast the first stone. He looked at the crowd. He said, you're right. The law says you're right. So whichever one of you has never, ever done anything awful, like showing up outside a person's house and dragging her out in the middle of the night, just let it go. Make it happen. In that moment, he looked at a scared, vulnerable, flawed human being in the worst moment of her life. And he said, I love you. There were no conditions. So again, what would we have done? Where would you and I have stood that morning? Would we have stood with the woman? Or would we have been picking up rocks with the mob? History says we would have been with the mob. And so begins the uncomfortable part. I'm not, I'm not just, I'm not asking, sorry, let's try that again. Please, please know here, I'm, I'm really just asking us to think, think through this. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm not telling you what to think. This is not just ancient history that puts us on the side of the mob there. You ever been in a passionate argument with somebody about whether or not the earth was formed six, in six literal days or over the course of billions of years? How many times has the person you argued with then gone and confessed that they love Jesus? Hasn't happened for me. How many Christians today are going to tell their gay neighbor how sinful he is? and how bad the things he does are. And how many of those gay neighbors are about to declare their commitment to Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? If Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, were standing right now outside of an abortion clinic while a scared, vulnerable, flawed human being in the worst moment of her life was walking past. Would he be holding a sign with a nasty slogan on it? Screaming at her about how awful she is? Or would he look that scared, vulnerable, flawed human being in the eye and say, I love you? Doesn't matter how right we are. Because being right has never saved anyone's soul. Jesus Christ coming to earth, predicting his own death and resurrection, and then pulling it off. That's what saved our souls. Nothing that we did. (laughs) 
And if we miss a chance to introduce someone to him in favor of being right, then what the heck are we doing here? We don't cover the earth with the perfect love of Jesus by quoting scripture, by disproving science, disproving science, only hanging out with other Christians, criticizing what other people are choosing to do with themselves. We do it by recognizing the moments where we're about to idolize rightness. We do it when we are walking down the street and someone who looks differently is coming toward us and we notice the urge to cross the street because it's uncomfortable. We do it when instead of giving in to that urge of uncomfortableness, of discomfort, of I'm angry at you because you think differently than me, we do what our Sunday school teachers always told us to do when we say, what would Jesus do? Not what are the other Christians doing. Not what would, what would my pastor do. What would Jesus do? So at the start of the message, I was talking about a meal Jesus shared with his friends before he died. At that meal, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What's on this table is the symbols of that. The bread is Jesus' body, broken for us. And the juice is his blood, which is his promise to love us no matter what. It's here to answer the question, what would Jesus do? So feel free to walk, uh, come on up, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and when you do that, remember him, and what would he do? Thank you.